In October 1947, Sydney housewife Yvonne Gladys Butler planned the perfect murder. She didn't arrange an alibi because she wouldn't need one. In fact, she felt so confident of getting away with it, she left the victim's body out in plain sight and didn't bother to hide it. Yvonne believed the perfect murder was possible if it could be made to look like something else entirely and no one even realised the crime had been committed. Her recipe for murder was simple. In her small kitchen at 57 Ferndale Street in the working class suburb of Newtown, she waited for the kettle to boil. She carefully measured from two small glass bottles, one labelled Bonox, the other Thalrat. Although both products were described as economical and easy to use, only one was marked poison. Cooking by feel, Yvonne did not measure precisely. She tapped a small amount from each bottle into a porcelain teacup, poured boiling water over the mixture and stirred. Her plan was now in motion. She watched the swirling vortex of liquid and paused to ensure the mixture had dissolved. She leaned over it. Curls of steam spiralled slowly and ominously from the cup. The flame-shaped clouds of water vapour touched her nose. Satisfied that the hot brew looked and smelled like a cup of regular beef tea, she picked it up and walked down the hall and upstairs to the bedroom. She flicked off the light as she passed and the entire house fell into darkness. She handed the hot tea to her husband, Desmond, who was propped up in bed reading the newspaper by lamplight. Your Bonox, dear. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined once again by Tanya Bretherton, talking about her new book, The Husband Poisoner, which takes a look at a spate of poisonings in post-war Sydney throughout the late 40s and the 50s, including the infamous cases of Yvette Fletcher and Carolyn Grills. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. The spate of thallium poisonings in the 40s and 50s is a part of Sydney's history that many listeners have probably never, ever heard of before. How did you come across this case? This is, it's a little bit different to the other books that I've done in the sense that uh, the stories I always kind of, I stumbled upon. This one I went looking for um, in the sense that I'd addressed other issues of gender and crime, but the big archetype or a big archetype of, of female crime is the poisoner. And so I actually went looking for poisoning stories because I thought this will be an interesting thing to write a book on if there are any. And, whoa, I did not know that I was going to find actually um, quite a big um, poisoning story that was, in fact, based in Sydney. And before we get into the book itself, thallium is the main weapon of choice for, for the people in this book. I wanted to ask a little bit about what thallium is and how it was so widely available in Sydney mm. at the time and what exactly made it such a perfect murder weapon. Um, thallium's a heavy metal and it's one that's um, in terms of the periodic table and I'm not a chemist, so other people I'm sure can speak with much more authority than I can, but yep. it, it's in the, the scheme of discoveries 
around the periodic table. Thallium is one of the later ones. It wasn't really discovered until the 1800s. But it's a heavy metal, so once it's ingested in the body, it reacts in, in, a, in a very similar way to other heavy metals. But thallium is particularly toxic. So mm. even a very, very small amount, um, it basically, if you take it for long enough, um, it destroys um, your nervous system completely. It was, I guess, developed into a poison because it could be manufactured it's very toxic. It's very concentrated. Um, it could be manufactured in a way so that it was tasteless, odourless, colourless. And in Sydney, in New South Wales in particular, there was a rat problem in Sydney that there has been really kind of since the beginning of the colony. But the vermin populations, there was a, an understanding that they'd become more difficult to eradicate. So they were a bit more finicky than they had been in the past. Mm. So the other poisons that had been used weren't working as effectively. Um, so they looked for a commercial preparation that was cheap to produce um, and effective. And that's how it ended up really on the market. And New South Wales, without sort of going into the whole legislative history of it, it was less regulated here than in other states. So it was easier to get. And it had other uses. You talk about this in the book a little bit, but it had other uses other than rat poisoning, which is kind of uh, absurd to think about, including hair removal cream. Yeah, absolutely. So the discovery of thallium is sort of attributed kind of jointly to two scientists, one French and one English. And, of course, once something is discovered, they then look for a, you know, an economic application. use yeah. for it. Yeah, so, um, so some of the things that were tried in the US in particular was the use of thallium because it removed hair and it was used in Australia for a similar purpose but in a more medical context. So it was used a lot on children to treat ringworm um, because ringworm required a topical cream to be applied and, of course, to get access to the area, it was often on the head. They often radiated children, so they'd put them through X-ray machines until their hair fell out. So in a relative sense, thallium was seen as being, I don't even know if less dangerous came into it. It was cheaper. <laughs> easier, yeah. Yeah, it was easier. So parents could give their children a couple of doses of thallium, the hair would fall out, and then they could apply, apply the, um, the, the ringworm ointments. Um, ringworm, highly contagious. So there was a whole other issue, uh, sort of medical or public health issue, I guess, that, um, that thallium was also seen as being a very good remedy for. Hmm. Do you know much about the state of thallium nowadays? Is it still being used in some in some circumstances or do we kind of know that it's too toxic to really apply to anything? Look, I think there's, there's a lot more awareness that it's toxic. The readings that I did around more recent thallium poisonings, they all appeared to be accidental. There were a lot in India and it was basically due to, from what I understand it, sort of accidental industrial exposure, but very similar symptoms and outcomes to what were described in mm. the book. Um, so it's still, it's a powerfully horrible thing is, to yeah. be exposed to. Um, and we are more aware of it now. And keeping with history a little bit, 
I wanted to kind of ask you with your with your knowledge and research what life in post World War Two Sydney was like because the, the socioeconomic things at the time kind of play a large role in what happens in this book. They did. It, it was one of the things that I think interested me about this story from a gender crime perspective. Without talking about the stories in a way that that you don't want to be an apologist. Mm for these sorts of things when they happen. But there was a context that was very specific to the post-war period. So a number of the, the stories within the book that I talk about, so the women were the women that I feature in, in the book, and there were lots more, but I've, I've sort of used a few case studies. Um, they were typically women who had worked during the war, who had children and responsibilities when the war ended, a kind of domesticity re-established itself across Sydney, um, those women found themselves in a very different situation to what they'd been um, during the war. And throw into that if you've got marital discord or any kind of pressure on a family where um, someone feels they can't leave a marriage, then you've you've got trouble mm. on your hands. And that was sort of a factor that was swirling around several of the stories um, that I looked at in the book. As you were saying, it's a much more intimate and domestic look at these cases and, and these families that you're dealing with perhaps than some of your other books. Mm. How did you go about researching these aspects of, you know, dom- domestic life and stuff like that and building a creative nonfiction narrative out of it? Yeah, the, do you know what's interesting is that this book in some senses, because of its, it was a lot more recent, there was actually a lot more material than there has been for some of the other the books that I've written, just because they're older. And also I think there's a fascination with social history in the post-war period. So a lot's been written about sort of the very early stages of a, of kind of a burgeoning or awakening feminism. So it's written very much from that perspective. Um, so there's kind of a lot of material. So, but again, I used, I guess, the same kind of multi-method approach. There's a lot of court transcripts. In fact, I think court transcripts for basically every case um, are available and are and a part of the public record. I studied a lot of social history, um, a lot of that published stuff that's been written around um, the post-war period, and also did family history, which I always do. But, yeah, there was a recency to it that just made it kind of, it made it very rich and vivid, put it that way. So with that question in mind, you mentioned that things were a lot more recent, so it was easier to get information. With that in mind, was your research process much different from, from your earlier books? It gave it offered benefits. Let's put it that way, because there was a you know the volume of material um, was was vast, but it also created some challenges because I think with some of the other books there was a distance between the events and my writing of them that I think it provides you with a kind of I'm trying to like a moral buffer. I'm trying to think of the way to to put it, that these things happened a long time ago. No one who was involved in these events really is, you know, in in many cases with some of the other books, there there aren't even descendants. These were much more recent stories. And there are people, I think, that still vividly remember, you know, the thallium poisonings because we had such a high-profile rugby league player um, and I talk about that in the book. And a lot of people know the, the Bobby Lullum story. So that's always tricky because 
as much as there are facts, you come to an understanding about what those facts are and how you're going to write about them. People also have their folkloric um, interpretation of history. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see what people make of that because it's likely people would go, that's not what happened. (laughs) That's not how I remember it. He knows, you know, you can only write and come to a conclusion and, and tell the story. The media hype around the case played a really huge role in your previous book, The Killing Streets. And I'm curious if, it's not really mentioned in the book as much, but I'm curious if there was a similar kind of media storm around the thallium poisonings that were happening. Look, there, there was of a, of a really different kind. In fact, for anyone that wants to go and look, um, there are incredibly vivid photographs of the court cases that were taken you know they're owned by Fairfax they're all online so you can just go and that because there's a recency to those things that is still owned by someone go and take a look they are incredibly um, vivid and rich accounts of our history but yeah there was a huge amount of drama around the cases. I think also because in in a couple of the cases, the Lowen one that we were talking about before, it intersected with that really sexy and dramatic. Mm. Um, the backstory of it um, was a divorce case and divorce cases um, were always very well documented then and um, very juicy so, yeah, all of that was going on at the same time. Um, so, so a lot of those photographs really are about the divorce case as much as they are about the thallium case. So make of that what you will. <laughs> Poisoning someone's as bad as divorcing someone, I don't know. But, yeah. Comparing again to your previous book, The Killing Streets, the police in The Husband Poisoner seem to be a lot more capable of getting to the bottom of things thanks to, I guess, about an extra 10, 20 years in scientific progress. As far as you know, were the thallium cases one of the first uses of forensic testing by Sydney police? From my understanding, they were certainly the first cases to use forensic testing in that way. Right. Because the work that they did with the Office of the Government Analyst, they had to develop the tests in order to make their case. Okay, yeah. So they actually sort of the action of the book starts for 1947-48, then there's a delay. We actually don't sort of have the first prosecutions of thallium poisoning until sort of 52, 53. In that period of time, there was a whole lot of bad behaviour going on and, and people were, were being poisoned. They just didn't, one, they weren't aware of it. And if they had been aware of it, I don't think they would have known how to go about testing for it. Um, so it was really only working very closely with the Office of the Government Analyst to say, okay, we suspect this is what's happened and we've based that on really neighbourhood testimony, you know, that, that we know something fishy is going on in this house and in one case one husband said, she's poisoning me. They then had to work out, okay, so actually how do we test for this because thallium isn't something we know anything about. The detectives in charge of the thallium murders are personality is much like the women in charge of the murders. What can you tell us about Detective Ferguson and Detective Sergeant Krahi and the impact that they had on the case? There's been a lot written, I guess, on the the seedier underbelly of New South Wales police history. Mm. There's a lot that's written on that. It's not something that I 
have written on extensively. I didn't realise it was going to be an aspect of this going into it. I actually didn't know. In a way, I didn't want to write a book about that Mm. because a lot has been written about it, Um, but you just couldn't sidestep it. It was absolutely the criminality, let's put it that way, I'm going to be that blunt about it, of the the two detectives that were at the centre of this story is undeniable Mm. and it's not something that you couldn't really even make the story about something else without talking about that. Um, They were big personalities, let's put it that way, swaggering in in one case, in the case of Freddie Cray, and and lots has been written about kind of what dangerous man he was. Mm. And to link things to modern times, I think you mentioned towards the end of the book that Freddie Cray was actually the mentor of Roger Rodderson, who ended up making headlines many, many decades later. Absolutely. And I, it's a frightening sense of dynasty. It is, yeah. And, and that I found it really shocking. And I didn't really set out to write a book that included that as part of the story, but it just was, it was central to, to what was going on. And, you know, Freddie Cray's involvement in um, the Juanita Nelson story. And that's such an important story, crime story for Sydney that we, we've never had an answer to. But, yeah, there's lots of very dangerous personalities in this book. As much as we think it's the women that are the dangerous and threatening personalities, they're counterbalanced by uh, some of the bad behaviour of um, the men involved as well. Well, I guess I'm curious if you feel comfortable answering if you think some of the convictions gained by this pair of cops were actually legitimate. I have no doubt that the way that they went about securing some of the convictions I don't think it would hold up today. There's there's just no way. And and I still do have some doubts about some of the convictions that they... I'll be interested to see what people Mm. think when they read the books and when they start, you know, if they're interested enough, they uncover a little bit of the history that's available to us around these stories beyond my book as well and come to their own conclusion. But there, there was some definitely some dodgy police work. There's no doubt about it. And I suppose that's not mutually exclusive. It, it still may mean that the people who were convicted did it. Mm. Dodgy police work may still have gone Absolutely, on. Absolutely, yeah. Well, with your sociology hat on, I'm curious why you think that the thallium poisonings became such a, I guess, epidemic around this time. Why do you think it seemed like everybody started to try and do it? I, I think in many cases, not so much. There's there's one standout, and that's the cases, uh, the incidents of poisoning around Caroline Grills. Yep. Taking her out of the picture because she's a bit of I an think anomaly. She, I think she's a bit of an aberration. Yeah. She's you know she's an outlier, but in, in almost all of the other cases marital discord and the laws around divorce were definitely a factor. And certainly the probably the most famous thallium poisoner, aside from Carolyn Grills, um, Yvonne Fletcher um, or Yvonne Butler, divorce was absolutely the fact that she didn't feel that she could divorce either husband. Mm. Absolutely it was it was a factor in what happened. So I think that there is a there's a legal context for those things, but I think there's also there's a lot that's been written around the fact that we had World War II, there were lots of women working, there were lots of women working and earning money and able to support their families, 
and then they were displaced. So in, in Yvonne's case, for example, she had two small children, a very unhappy marriage, and she lost her job because her job was given to a returning soldier, yeah. which we absolutely understand the necessity, you know, for those things. But people are then very vulnerable um, when those women can't get work. And for Yvonne, so there were economic factors, um, there were also legal factors, and I think there was there was almost a cultural, there was a fascination with dangerous women. Mm. That's right. You mentioned in in uh, noir films at the time that yeah. had these like seductive female heroines. So there's yeah. a huge spate of films that came out of Hollywood and a lot of women were going to the cinema at that time. It was kind of the main cheap pastime. There was a huge spate of films coming out of Hollywood mm. in the post-war era that were, in some cases, they were about women poisoners, but they were all about this archetype of the women as plotters, planners, schemers, and power brokers, mm. either in their relationships or in their families. And Caroline Grills, for example, I talk about it a little in the book, she was a weekly um, cinema goer. Um, she went with, with girlfriends and family members. Um, so there's a fascination with a different kind of woman, I think, in the way that there hadn't been before. The Husband Poisoner in particular has quite a few shocking, harrowing things in it, namely the description of Desmond's slow and torturous death from thallium poisoning. During your writing and researching process, how did you get through these more disturbing aspects of the case? If there's one thing that stayed with me terribly after writing this book, it's that. Yeah. There are parts of me that are still trapped in that house, I think, in Newtown, because the house is still there. Ferndale Street's there. Oh, and, wow. Um, yeah, and then certainly the houses, because of the way that Newtown is, they've been modified a mm. little bit. It's the house. Yeah. <laughs> It's exactly the same house, you know. Um, they don't change much because they're terraces. But, um, yeah, Desmond's story is very affecting. It's sad. It is, It's terribly yeah. sad. So if there's ever those moments where we feel like maybe there was a reason why some of these women did what they did, think of Desmond because, yeah, he had a really, really terrible, terrible time of it. And he was poisoned for so long because of the stigma around mental illness at the time, that even further, I think, it shaped the response to um, getting him help, getting him treatment and recognising that there was a problem, I think, because the thallium um, poisoning was slowly destroying his, his nervous system. It was sending him mad. Mm. It was sending him mad. And there was such a stigma around that the neighbourhood was kind of going, he's not right in the head. Let's just look the other way yeah. because that's not something that we want to talk about. So men and, and mental illness were, were things, there was a big stigma around that and it, it stopped him from getting the help that he needed. Well, on a much happier note, last year you won the Danger Prize for The Killing Streets. How was that? How did that feel to have your, your work rewarded such like that? It was fantastic. I'm, I'm just so, so pleased. Um, I felt very, very honoured because um, some great books came out last year, some great um, true crime uh, books came out last year. So, yeah, it was wonderful. I was very, very pleased. 
And if you're comfortable talking about it, are you interested in saying a little bit about what your next book will be focusing on? I'm actually balancing two. So I, I never work on just one thing because of the types of books that I write and they're so heavily research-based. I'm often quite far into the research process before I decide I'm ultimately going to write on, on a subject matter because I want to know that there's enough twists and turns and enough guts in the story. So I'm actually looking at two. One's on baby farming. Oh, of course. Yeah, because there's a whole other spate of baby farmings that happened in Sydney that preceded the ones in Erskineville. Uh, so I'm looking into that. And I'm also looking at um, the life of a young Aboriginal woman who was in um, Parramatta Girls' Home. And that's a very vivid and um, horrible part of Sydney's history. Um, So I'm sort of, I haven't quite worked out which of those two um, I'm going to progress. And I may end up, if there's enough, I'll write both. Well, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read hopefully both of them. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Max. It's great to talk.